That was awesome. I appreciated that. Um, my name is Blair. We're in Genesis looking at the story of Joseph. And for the first two weeks of the series, we looked at um, the character of God, things about God that he wanted to put in the story early that he wanted you to know about. You have to understand this about me. And so it's embedded in the story, and we've looked at those. This week, we're shifting gears. And we're going to look at, we're about to look at a wreck that these guys make of their lives. That song was talking about an emotional, relational wreck that happens, and you're going to see that take place in the life of Joseph, the brothers, and the dad. They're all going to get wrecked. Um, there were lines in that song about, there were the ghosts in my mind that I couldn't escape. The decision that they're going to make is going to haunt them like that. I'm going to be able to show you in the text that's the case. They were to bend days where they could have longed to see him just one more time, but it didn't happen because of their mistake. And the mistake that we're going to look at is still going on today, still happening with you and I in our relationships. And so it's going to be worth our time and effort to pay attention to this. Now, I'm going to take you into a section of Scripture that... Um, a little surprising that we're going to spend that much time there because there, it seems just cut and dry. Except when I was doing some research on all of this, I ran across the controversy in the story of Joseph that I didn't even know existed. I was like, really? The majority of people would not say this is controversial at all. In fact, they would just say it's a weird, it's a weird opinion you should discard. And I'm kind of used to that. I hear opinions from people all the time and I kind of understand a lot of different perspectives are out there, and just because somebody has opinion doesn't make it right. And we live in a world now where if you just look hard enough, wait long enough, you'll find somebody who believes what you believe, that kind of reinforces what you think. That's not my measure. I want to look at what the Scripture has to say. What does the Scripture say on this? And that's where this causes a little bit of issue for me, because the group of people who rose, who, who brought this controversy to the front, I, I kind of think a lot like they do about the scriptures. This is a group of Jewish rabbis who think you should focus on the text with a lot of energy. They think that when you read it, you shouldn't assume that you're finding a mistake. In fact, if you find something odd, what you should do is you should dig in, you should push into that. Because you don't understand it isn't the problem. There's probably a truth there that you just don't get. And the only way you're going to get it is if you search. Is if you decide, to, I'm going to really pay attention. I'm going to dig in and find out what's going on. They believe that the truths that you find in the text still matter to your life today. I think all of that, where we differ, we differ about a big thing. Uh, most of these Jewish rabbis would not, would not see Jesus as Messiah. They don't see him in the text like I do. I see him everywhere. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about how Jesus shows up in the Joseph story. I think it's as clear as can be. And so we'll disagree with that. And so I'm cautious as I listen to that group of people because I know we don't have that in common, but they have such a passion for the text that I was willing to at least be open to, to what they might say. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to kind of walk into that with you. And I've, I've kind of made up my mind of what I think happened. 
I'm not going to tell you one way or the other. I'm going to spend most of my time presenting their idea um, because I think everybody, our, everybody else always accepts the other side of this. They think that's just the way it happened. I don't really need to, I don't really need to forward that one at all. And the reason I'm going to do this is because I think it will open up to the conversation that I want to have at the end about what's really going on in the text that causes a problem that's still showing up today. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. Um, let me just bring it, like, I'll go through this fast. We're in chapter 37 of Genesis. We've looked at the idea of who is your father being introduced early. It runs all the way through this Joseph story. Then Joseph sent off on an errand. He goes through Shechem. Why Shechem is mentioned? Because it, the brothers aren't there. There's no good reason for it. And so we traced it back through history and helped you understand that Shechem was about this thing that God was doing in the world. Like he, he had a mission for them to accomplish and he wanted to get them back on mission. Now, um, I, I have a correction to make. So for a year now, my wife has been saying, Blair, your mental faculties are going. Um, she says, um, I don't remember things that I used to remember. She goes, when you're on stage, you say names and it's the wrong name. And everybody knows it, so they're polite with you, but you got to get it right. You got to get these guys' ideas right. Like, she's like, sharpen up, man. And I was like, all right, I don't think it's a big deal. But I'm going through my notes and I came across something that I had written down that I really should have included last week, and I didn't. And I told you it at one point in the text that the area, this is Shechem, you had to kind of connect the dots. Even though I had a note on my page that had this verse, this is Genesis 33:18. Oh, look, it's the city of Shechem. It says it right there. I knew that. I had it in my notes. I didn't say that. This definitely Shechem, right? So I, maybe she's right. I don't care. Um, so city of Shechem, and we get this attachment all the way back to this thing that God wants to do. And then the story fast forwards. He actually finds his brothers in a different place. They see him coming, and they have such a visceral hate for this guy that they come up with a plan. Let's kill him. Let's, let's kill this guy. And as the story unfolds, they end up seeing Joseph go into slavery. And here's what's interesting. Let me give you, let me give you a little um, backstory. Because the reason the rabbis get so concerned about, this is, this is the controversy. They don't think the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. They think they were responsible for the environment where everything happened, but they weren't the ones who made the cash deal for their brother. And they think that because of an omission that happens much deeper into the story. So this omission happens in chapter 42. In chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45, Joseph hasn't seen his brothers for a long time. Let me, let me just explain how long it's been even. We know the scriptures tell us how old he was when he left his home before he was sold into slavery. He was 17. We know he was age 30 when he's elevated into the court of Pharaoh. Age 30, by the way, should cause you to think, hmm, how old was Jesus when he started his ministry, right? Um, 
so he was 17 years there. He spent seven or 13 years there. He spent seven years collecting good crop. And then we know from the text that it was two years before his brothers show up. It's 22 years. 22 years have elapsed. They have not seen each other. All they're left with is what they believed happened on that day. And Joseph doesn't have a trust for his brothers, and so he starts testing them. And the testing is long. It's that this little four chapters. It's pretty extensive. And the first thing he asked them to do is go home and bring back his younger brother, bring back Benjamin. They don't know it's his younger brother, but he figures out that Benjamin's still alive. He wants to see him alive. He wants to get proof. And so he puts Simeon in jail. And as the brothers are discussing this test, this predicament they're in, their words are recorded. They're talking to each other in front of Joseph, but he understands what they're saying. And this is what's said. This is verse 21 of chapter 42. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. I want that to sink in for just a second. It's been 22 years since a decision had been made to treat their brother so poorly that he winds up as a slave in Egypt. Something's going wrong in their lives, and what's the first thing they think could be happening? I'm being punished for this. I wonder if they've been feeling this way the whole time. 22 years, anytime something bad happens, this is happening because we did this to our brother. Do you see the weight of guilt that these guys have been carrying for 22 years? The guilt of the choices they made, the guilt of lying to their father, all of that is weighing on their hearts and on their souls as they stand there. But here's what's fascinating. The scriptures actually record what they feel guilty about. It's going to surprise you. The end of verse 21. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. They're upset because they didn't listen to his pleading. Wouldn't you be upset if you sold your brother for 20 coins of silver? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you mention that we sold him into slavery and he probably died? But what they're, what they're referring to is we listened to his pleading and we didn't do anything about it and we feel really guilty about that. Either they're in denial or the Jewish rabbis look at this and they think, what if they're not feeling guilt for selling him into slavery because they didn't do it? Is there anything in the text that might lead us to believe that this this one thing that they are feeling guilty about is the thing that would be on their minds. This is their first whiff. So let's go back to 37 and let's start walking through the story. And we're going to see if we can find where uh, maybe something turned out differently than we think that it turned out. So in Genesis 37, 20, we get plan A. This is the first Joseph is coming. They see him off in a distance. They have this visceral gut hate for him. And this is what happens. Verse 20, come, up, come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns 
and say that a ferocious beast devoured him. They get really snarky at the end of the verse and they're like, let's see how his dreams are then. Like, they have such hate for him that they think there would be great satisfaction if they could kill him with their own hands. That's where this starts. But the rabbis notice something pretty quick. It's verse 21, and something unique happens. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. And Reuben proposes plan B. Now, who is Reuben? If you were paying attention really close first week, you saw me put up um, a screen where the, there's all the brothers. We're talking about the inheritance. Reuben's the oldest. Now, Reuben did something where he is, he is never going to get the inheritance. You can go find it in the text. I don't want to talk about it right now. He is never going to get the double portion from his dad. But in that position as oldest, Reuben had a responsibility in the family. He was called the Behor. There was a, there was a, a real role that he had where his responsibility was to smooth things over between other siblings and dad. He was the go-between. He was a mediator. Um, if you think about this, um, think about the prodigal son story. The young son wants to sell dad to sell his um, belongings and give him his inheritance. And the oldest son, all he does is he gets snotty with it. He doesn't intercede. He doesn't try to smooth things over. He doesn't try to make it go better. And in fact, later in the story, when the son returns, he doesn't want to have anything to do with him. He was not fulfilling his responsibilities as Behor. But Reuben appears to. Reuben appears to be taking this role very seriously. In fact, he comes up with plan B for the stated reason is in the second part of verse 22. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Reuben had decided that he was going to find a way to make sure Joseph got back to his father because that was his responsibility in the family. It was a smooth, smooth over this kind of stuff and we now know his intentions. His intentions are crystal clear. And if his intentions are crystal clear, then if Joseph ends up being sold by the brothers, either his intentions have to change, I'm going to show you they don't, or he's going to have, he's going to, have to make a strategically horrible decision. Because if you've decided that you want to thwart like the evil actions of a group of people, you have a couple different strategies you could do. One you don't take your eye off them, right? Wherever they go, you go. You listen to what they say, and then you find a way to undermine whatever they're doing so that they can't pull it off. That's option number one. Or option number two, you wander off into the wilderness and hope they behave. Which would you do? This is the question that the rabbis have when they look at this section of Scripture. It's this simple. Where is Reuben? Because if Reuben's anywhere near this situation, he's not going to let it unfold because we are told what his intentions are. Joseph finally arrives, and they go through with plan B. Plan B 
is we're not going to put the blood on our hands. We're going to take and we're going to pitch him into a cistern. He's just going to, and he'll die of starvation, but we can say at least the blood's not on our hands. We didn't kill him. He starved to death. Now again, Reuben said that so that eventually he could go back and get him out and return him to dad. But then, verse 25 comes along, and this is where it gets, this is where it gets interesting. As they sat down to eat their meal. Now you got to think about this for a little bit. Um, do, you, do you guys understand what a cistern is? I think I took some pictures, I got some pictures of some. Yeah, this is a really good one. Okay, um, so a cistern in the ancient world uh, was built to hold water. This is not a well. You, you can see um, the plaster kind of stuff on the side right here. They would dig a large hole, there'd be all kinds of rock, and then they would plaster it all the way down to the bottom because if you didn't put a non-porous substance in it, the water would leak out. And then the way you would catch water is you would put all of these kind of contraptions in that would allow water to flow into there so that when you needed it at some point as you came by, you could get the water. There, there, um, these things would have been smooth like glass. If you put somebody in there, they're not getting out on their own. They're not crawling out of a cistern. And some of them are much bigger. Um, I stood in one where there were 30 of us in it, and we weren't pushing for space at all. It, they were that big. So these cisterns could be significantly big. But what would happen if somebody threw you in a cistern? What would you likely do? Let me out of here! And it would echo. It's smooth all the way up. And you would plead and beg and yell for your life. And let me ask you, if that were happening for you, would you be able to sit there and have a nice lunch? Or would it annoy you enough? Would it disturb your animals enough that you're take, taking care of that you would need to walk away, get as far away from it as you can so the noise would die down and you could be by yourself. The rabbis think that this is what happened. That there's no way that they ignored the pleading of their brother, which is why the stuff that happens in chapter 42 suddenly makes sense. Because they heard the pleading of their, their brother from that pit and they walked away, probably far enough away that they couldn't hear him and probably couldn't see it either. They just went on the other side of the hill. We got to get away from this guy. We're going to leave him there to die anyway. What's the difference? So off they go. Now here's where it gets interesting. What happens next, right after they sit down to eat, the scriptures record that they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. And... Somebody comes up with the idea, this is plan C. Let's not kill him ourselves. Let's not be the ones responsible for killing him by letting him starve. Let's instead sell him, make some money, at least we'll get something out of this. And then, so plan C gets talked about. And then we find this in verse 28. This is where it gets interesting. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now here we go. 
we talking about this? Why are we having this conversation, right? If it says the brothers pulled him up out of the cistern, why is there any controversy at all? That would end it for me. There's only one problem. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says they pulled him up. Now here's the thing. I'm not an English major. My spelling's horrible. On many occasions, my wife has come to me and gently said, don't you think you should get Grammarly, right? Um, Which is, after she said that, then I determined I was going to be okay with sounding like I had a third grade education no matter what. It didn't matter. I was going to write whatever I wanted to. No, I'm not getting Grammarly. But even I know that when you use the pronoun they, that it's supposed to be connected to the last group that was mentioned. You don't jump over other groups, otherwise it gets confusing. Who's the last group that's mentioned in this little text here? The Midianites. The Midianite merchants came by. They pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels. Now here's here's where this is interesting and difficult. Uh, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites are both mentioned in this twice, both of them twice. Judah sees them once, and then they're mentioned as the ones who buy Joseph. The Midianites are mentioned twice. They're mentioned as somebody passing by, and if they're, if they're not part of the story, why are they there? They're just passing by, and what's the point of even bringing them up? But they're also mentioned in verse 36, is the ones who sold him in Egypt. And a lot of people have said, listen, the reason that this is happening is because the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, they're the same people. They're actually from the same nation. They're definitely not the same people. There were different people groups in that nation. One of them were Ishmaelites. One of them were Midianites. And so the Scriptures are calling out both. And for you to accept the rabbi's take on this, you would have to understand verse 36 where it calls out and says, the Midianites sold them in Egypt. They would be the ones who were responsible for all of this. So again, you you have to wrestle through that. One other tight section of scripture on this. Genesis 45. Joseph has been testing his brothers. They've passed They've passed the test. And Joseph decides to reveal himself to them. And he says this in verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And 2, verse 5, and now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. And he goes on to talk about how God sent him. The only way for you to accept that this doesn't make sense is for you to go, okay, um, Joseph thought his brothers were responsible for this. Joseph thought that his brothers had been the ones who did this. But I want to show you something because it it makes this whole thing just a little confusing. Um, Genesis 37 29. Check this out. 
When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. You have to accept that Reuben went off somewhere, leaving these brothers to do whatever they might do. And he came back and was surprised. Or he had been sitting with these brothers the whole time, heard their plan to sell him, decided to sneak out and get him out of there and get him home. And when he arrived at that cistern, he could not believe his eyes. Nobody was there. Verse 30 says, he went back to his brothers who were not at the cistern. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? The rabbis suppose that this is the first time that all of them have figured out that Joseph isn't there. That they've been making these rash decisions this whole time. See, here's the thing. Whether it's the brothers decided, pulled him up and sold him, or the brothers created this environment where that could happen, you can debate and have conversations about that, and I ask that you would. I think that would be great. I think pulling you into the text, having you have conversations with each other, introducing God into this, I think makes a ton of sense. But here's what you can't debate. There was a plan A, there was a plan B, there was a plan C. And you can follow the progression that happened in that story. They started, they started with this emotional outburst of hate. And the choice they wanted to make was to kill him. And as Reuben created space, then the choice they wanted to make was just let him die. And as more space took place, they came up with a different choice. And it, um, it reminds me of a book that was written um, called Thinking, Fast and Slow. Uh, the author took and he looked at the way that mankind makes decisions. And he said, I'm, I'm noticing two systems of decision making that we operate with. One of them is fast. Sometimes it's really helpful. It's the strength of the system. You use intuition to make the choice that you have to make. Like it's a gut feeling that you go with. But he said, if, if you are overly charged with emotion... This is a dangerous choice. System one, you make fast decisions when you're emotionally charged and you wreck stuff. You, you, ev you, everything gets destroyed in the path of that thing. Now there might be a place for fast decisions, but not with relationships. He so said there's a system two kind of decision-making. It's slow. By the way, it's its strength and its weakness. The strength is it's slow. But when you're emotionally all charged up and fired up, slow doesn't feel good to you. Feels like that's a mistake. But it's deliberate. It's logical. And there's still an emotional component that's a part of that. If I'm, I'm kind of blending research because they've had some research recently where they've been able to understand that your emotions are in part of every decision that you make. And sometimes, especially in the church, I've heard this, is that there's two types of emotions, an emotional choice that you make and a logical choice that you make. You have to get rid of all emotion to make logical choices. You have to 
get rid of being human if that's what you're going to do. The question isn't whether emotion's going to be there or not. It's going to be in both sets of decisions. The question is, is it emotionally charged or not? And what we find in the Joseph story is they are so charged with hate. It doesn't have to be hate. It could be jealousy. It could be fear. It could be lust. It could be all kinds of things that we carry around in our lives that simply cause us to make quick, fast decisions. And when we make these decisions, what we do is we wreck everything around us. Because any, any kind of deliberate kind of decision, by the way, you can make a terrible decision deliberately too. There's something that's going on in the heart of you that's off. But when you go fast, you're not stopping for a second to figure out if there is something wrong in your heart or not. You're just responding and reacting. By the way, there's actual marriage research out right now, clinical studies on this that say that if you start fast, if you, if you make fast decisions, emotionally charged reactions inside your relationship when you start an argument, 96% of the time, you won't solve anything. All it does is cause damage to the relationship. That's all you get. What is frustrating to me is we live in a culture where you are being trained that your first blush emotional response is the thing that you put out on the world wide web in all kinds of different ways for people to digest. You're actually rewarded for it. You're given likes, you're, you're given trending, people jump in for you, people jump in against you, you get all kinds of attention for it. And all you're doing is making a wreck. And yet, our culture has come along and said, that's the way to get this stuff done. And I would suggest to you that what God had in mind is that when we would get into these emotionally charged situations, that we would choose system two, that we would decide to slow it down for one reason, that God would be able to step into that situation and inform you of what could be off in you that's causing or would cause a response or a reaction that wouldn't be helpful. Maybe you back away from the situation. You take a 20-minute break. You find a way to catch your breath. You pray. You ask God to help you understand the feelings that you're feeling right now so that based on what you what you're understanding, you can actually have a genuine conversation with somebody. You stop texting. You stop writing that email. Just stop. Stop. Why would you stop? The life of these brothers 22 years later they are walking around with a weight of guilt and regret that they can't shake. 
22 years later, Joseph looks at his brothers and isn't sure if he can trust them as far as he can throw them. These fast emotional reactions, highly charged emotional reactions that we have with each other and our relationships, they're damaging. And unless you find a different strategy, you will see the story of Joseph repeated in your life over and over, where you will do harm thinking that you're right in the heat of a moment. And the thing that you missed was you didn't back far enough away to let God do some work on you, to inform you about what's happening in your heart that needs adjusted or changed so that you could have a genuine conversation. And without that, there'll be a wreck. See, I'm convinced that God wants to do that for you because he's a good God. In this situation, it didn't happen because God had different plans for Joseph. He had a, he had a desire to change the trajectory of this family and he needed Joseph away from them, changed away from them so that he would become father, so that Joseph would follow his leading and eventually rescue his family and help save the world. But God was good in that situation too. And I'm convinced God would be good with you if you could just be willing to slow it down, reject the way our culture is going about relationships and take a different path where God speaks into your world before the things that you say, the things that you do, the attitudes that you carry cause you to carry regret and guilt for years. But it is your choice. I want to pray with you real quick. Uh, God, we come before you and uh, for me, I can recognize this kind of stuff in my own life. It's really easy to go fast and to think I'm right while I'm doing it. But you're a good God. And you don't want to see these kind of wrecks. You don't want to see this kind of hurt happen in our lives. You'd love the chance to speak into this stuff. And so I just ask that you would help us to consider different ways to start slowing these things down. Finding ways to not go with our first blush reaction. Paying attention that when we're super emotionally charged, that that's not a time for a decision to be made. Learning in the midst of feelings that we have to understand what they communicate about what's going on in our heart and giving you a shot at it. God, these are the things that you care about. And I just ask as we wrestle through this, the story of Joseph would be in the backs of our minds. I could choose to do this stuff and carry guilt and regret for years or I could choose a different path. 
God, give us the courage to push away from the way our culture does things and to choose you, a loving, good God, instead. Give us the courage to act. In Jesus' name, amen.